Thank you for inviting me here, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm delighted to be here and to share with you a little bit of my thoughts on this wonderful monument just down the street from us. I think the fact that this talk was sold out has a lot to do with the fact that this story is still so compelling to us now. Um, the issues that were raised in the formation of this regiment and with the story of Shaw and, and the way St. Gardens told it, the, the fact that young men still die in war, the fact that um, people still lose families in, in terrible circumstances, all of that makes this story compelling and real even now, today. Um, you'll see at the end of my talk, we have a, a photograph of the version of the Shaw Memorial that is currently at the St. Gardens National Historic Site. And um, I'm always struck when I'm walking around the grounds to see people there and reacting to it and responding to it. Um, some older people, some younger people, it, it still speaks to people to this day. Um, for, for the purpose of this talk, I'm going to be focusing on two men, um, Colonel Shaw on the left and St. Gardens on the right. And um, if you're particularly um, 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 careful in your vision around here, you'll notice that St. Gardens is actually watching us at this moment. There's a beautiful bust of St. Gardens over on the right on the table there by his um, um, assistant, Henry Herring. It's one of the nicest portraits of him done. Um, so he's, he's here with us today, so he's, and he's, he's facing me, so I have to do a good job here because he's watching me. So, um, But um, these two men um, would, in some way, couldn't have been any more different, and yet their lives crossed, their paths literally did uh, cross, um, and um, although neither one of them would have known it at the time. Um, to say that Shaw's family was rich would be an understatement. Um, the Shaws were actually one of the wealthiest families in the country. The, the money came from shipping, um, and their clipper ships um, were, were around the globe constantly. The, the, the sun never set on, on the Shaw enterprise. It was, it was a global enterprise. Um, and um, they were moving goods and people. Um, so it wasn't any particular thing that they were moving, but the ships would just carry one product to a port and then pick up something else and take. So they were constantly moving. Um, what that did for Shaw um, is it gave him a, a, a um, certainty in his life. It gave him a sense that um, his life was um, cared for and taken, taken care of, um, um, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. I, um, and in his case, um, it, it made him, frankly, a bit feckless in his, in his youth. Um, it made him kind of um, not push himself as, as much as he might have because it was all cared for. Um, 
He was um, um, educated here and in Switzerland. Um, he was multilingual. Um, he had, um, as he reached his maturity, had um, dabbled in business. Um, but it, again, it didn't matter because he was going to be coming into the family firm anyway. So whether he was good at business or not didn't really matter. So in other words, his life was going on a very gentle course. The Civil War changed all of that, and quickly. And the, the denouement then of his life came about in really two years. It, it's, an ama it's amazing the, the, how quick it all happened, that, it, that, that you, you think of it as kind of drawn out, but it wasn't. It was all very fast, very compressed. Um, St. Gardens came from a very different background. St. Gardens was born in Dublin, Ireland um, in 1848 of, in the artisan class. Um, his uh, father was a designer and maker of shoes, um, and his um, mother worked in the factory. Um, they, um, they were not, they were not the lowest um, caste, but they were cer certainly not middle class either. They were somewhere in between. Um, the father came from the south of France, um, so he was actually not even technically French. He was Gascon. He was um, in the region of the Pyrenees. He was kind of a um, Spanish-French um, origin, and the family actually is partly Spanish and partly French. Um, he um, had moved up to Paris, where he actually learned French, because he didn't speak French initially. Um, and then he moved on to London, and then from London to Ireland. He was a member of a trade group, um, which, which actually um, allowed him to move. Um, they had several sons. Um, the first uh, three died in infancy. Um, St. Gaudens was the first to survive, and after him there were two more boys. Um, they came to America in 1848. Um, the famine was happening in Ireland. Um, it didn't really affect Dublin that much, but still it wasn't a good time to be in Ireland. So they came to America, settled in New York, where the father took advantage of his um, French accent to get a lot of clients for shoes. And, and he, he, that's in the correspondence, he talks about that. So I'm not being facetious. He actually said that his name and his accent helped him get clients. Um, but he was a dreamer, um, but he was also an abolitionist. Um, he was a, a, a staunch advocate of um, nationalist causes throughout the world, and he, he um, started the first African-American um, Masonic Lodge in New York uh, because he was so incensed that um, blacks were not allowed in, in the Masonic Lodges in New York at the time, so he just said, you know, enough of that, and he started his own Masonic Lodge and, and invited blacks. So he, he was an interesting man. So, so both the Shaws and the St. Gardens were raising their boys in this very progressive kind of a, a um, atmosphere, um, which comes um, later into the story. Um, the, the 54th Regiment came out of necessity. Um, it came because of Governor um, John Andrew, who um, relentlessly pursued it um, and, and just kept 
um, like a little terrier kept kept at it until it happened. But but there was another reason too. The reason is because um, the um, casualties in the Civil War were far more than anybody had ever imagined. Um, it was just staggering. And um, by the time the regiment was being formed, the Union was running out of men. They just didn't have enough soldiers. So they had to find a body of men quickly. So um, it was the right time for people to say, well, you know, here's something that politically can be useful to us. We, we, have, we are trying to get this body of people free from servitude. Why not make them soldiers? Why not bring them into the Union Army? It clinches you know, their participation in our side. So, on. so it came at the right time. Um, once it was announced, once it was decided to do it, um, Frederick Douglass was the main person to, to raise the people, and he went around the country um, speaking wonderfully, eloquently about it. And very practically, very practically, um, he would answer all the negatives, all the cons. He would, he would say to, to his audiences, um, yes, I know, you know, you may say this is a white man's war. It has nothing to do with us. You may say, you know, a regiment like this is too little, too late. That's all for later. Those, those subjects can be dealt with later. Right now, we're halfway up the mountain. The end is in sight. Let's push a little farther and see if we can reach it. So he, he urged people, yes, I know this, isn't the, this is not a panacea, but let's move it. Let's, let's, let's push forward and see where we can go. And to show his seriousness, he enlisted his own sons in it. Um, um, they both survived um, the, the, the actions um, of the war, but, but he, you know, he, he gave his own uh, family as a, as a, as a um, um, just as a statement of how serious he was about this. Um, the, the regiment was formed, as you can see there, it was, um, the camp was um, uh, just west of Boston um, in what was then called Reedville. Um, and the thing that's interesting about it, um, when Shaw was first proposed by Andrew as the colonel for it, he didn't want to do it. Um, he was happy. He was in the second regiment, uh, Massachusetts regiment. He was happy there. He had served well. Um, he had been at Antietam, almost died at Antietam, um, saved from death by his pocket watch uh, in his, in his uh, vest pocket that, that re deflected a bullet. Um, but he was happy. He didn't want to move. And then he had some doubts. Um, a regiment is a thousand men. That's a big responsibility f for a man who was not yet 30. Um, so he didn't know that he could, he didn't know if he was up to it. Um, so uh, he wasn't sure. And he, and he turned it down. He turned the, the, the governor down. But his mother, Sarah, told him he was compelled by God to do it. And um, I don't know about you, but if my mother said you're compelled by God to do something, I would get off my seat and do it. But, um, and that's, that's what, what he did. He just, he just went for it and, and did it. Um, and um, so he, he took it on. And once he took it on, he took it on with ferocity. And he knew that this was an entirely untested group of men that were formed here. For the most part, the regiment was made up of freedmen, 
um, very few of them were actually slaves. Most of them were free men. Some of them were, um, most of them were American. Some of them were African, some from Caribbean. Um, they came from all around the, the, the country and, and, and other places. But he knew that they were going to be kept to uh, uh, not just a high standard, but a standard that was even higher than others. So he, he drove them hard. Um, and in fact, he had to be reminded to, to gentle down a little bit because he was pushing them almost too much. He was almost um, to the point of, of um, really um, a cruelty in a way, the way he drilled them. But it came, but, but, but it worked because when they finally were to um, come and have their parade through Boston to get to the ships to go south, um, everyone was struck by their military precision, by the seriousness and, 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 and sincerity that you could see on their faces, the passion on their faces, um, and it worked. Um, and, and people began to see, okay, maybe this is something that's going to work. Um, they went down to the south. They were in a number of small skirmishes. Um, and that's where Shaw was tested as a leader um, he learned a valuable lesson early on when he was asked by his commanding officer to um, go into a small village and destroy it, burn it to the ground. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it because he didn't want to do it himself, but he didn't want to do it because he thought, I don't want people who already are critical of my regiment to say, ha, you see, you can't trust these, these, these African people. They're going to just, you know, burn. So, so he really didn't want to do it. But he learned the, the lesson of being in the military that when your commanding officer commands you, you have to do it. So that was a, that was a political um, lesson for him. But it also stayed in the back of his mind. So when it came finally to the, the, the regiment to be brought down to um, be part of this um, attack on Charleston and the defenses of Charleston. He wanted a central role. Um, he really wanted it because that's where he knew that this was going to be his, his place to, to really show the, 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 his own medal but also that of his people. Um, the, um, the area around Charleston is protected by Fort Sumter in the middle of the harbor. It's, it's, it's dead center in the harbor, right? In the middle of it. And then outside, there's a, the um, sandbanks, these, uh, these shifting, constantly shifting islands of sand and marshland, which are on the outskirts. It was not an easy place to take. And the Confederates had not only the fort of Sumter, but they also had batteries all the way around, scattered around smaller ones, and Wagner was one of them. It was um, designed um, to be made of sand, so it was made um, of, the, of the earth, not just because it was easy, because that's the, the material they had, but also because um, it was something that would absorb um, artillery. Um, it, was a, it was a very uh, carefully designed uh, fort, and so much so that it actually was never taken. 
in battle. Um, when it finally went, it went because it was abandoned, not because it was taken. Um, the, um, I, I say that because it was almost preordained that this attack was going to fail. Um, the, the, what had happened is that the Navy had come down and surrounded the port. And why Charleston? Well, Charleston was a big city, but there was an even bigger reason. There was a more important and critical reason. The Union had intercepted um, messages from the South, which told them that there were ships coming from England with modern repeating rifles. The Union didn't have them. If those weapons had gotten through to the, to the Confederacy, the war would more or less pretty much certainly have been over, and, and the, the Confederacy would have won. So it was vitally important that those um, rifles not get in. So the, the admiral collected any ship he could find. There was a massive number of ships outside of the harbor, um, and they were carrying on a constant uh, pecking away at the, these batteries, these fortifications, to try to loosen it up. So by the time um, the 54th arrived, um, they were ready for action. First, the Union tried a naval action, um, and they tried to attack these forts just with ships from sea. It was a massive, violent attack that failed. It didn't go anywhere. And it didn't go anywhere because Fort Sumter was too massive to take, this great stone fort that couldn't get past it. And these batteries, were because they were scattered around in various places, you couldn't really fire anywhere because you're firing over there, but then the shot's coming from over here. So it, 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 it was hard. So they regrouped, and then they tried again. So the, the second battle that, that, that the um, 54th was involved with, they thought they had the problem solved. And as it turns out, they didn't. It also turns out that it was, again, almost preordained not to work. The, the, the Union spies had gone up as far as seeing the, the fortress the, 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 the battery, the, the, the Wagner, but they didn't see what was behind it. They didn't see what was around it. They didn't see that there were swamps on the back of it. They didn't see that around the fort there was a moat, um, and they certainly wouldn't have known what was in the moat because there was a nasty surprise in the moat they didn't know about. So they weren't well prepared. And then there was another chance occurrence. A, 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 um, an, an officer, Lieutenant Hale, uh, from the Confederacy, was injured, and he climbed up to the um, tower of the church in Charleston, looked out with his binoculars, and found that he was looking directly at the Union ships, and he was looking directly at the semaphore signals, and he figured out the, 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 the system. So he was writing down, so he knew exactly when the fort, the fort was going to be attacked, and he, he gave them all, gave all that information. So, so it was, it, so when this thing came, it, it just wasn't going to work. It just wasn't going to work. But of course, the Union didn't know that. So they attacked, 
The 54th went first. Shaw had volunteered that, um, and um, there was a great sense of um, camaraderie amongst the other regiments behind that um, as they moved forward, um, the other regiments cheered, um, which they all saw as, as, as this mark of, of, all right, they're with us, they're, they're, they're going to come behind us. Um, the regiment behind them was the New Hampshire Regiment, and then Vermont, and then, and then New York, and Ohio, and other regiments behind them. Um, when they came up the beach, uh, and they came in the evening, so they had the ocean on one side and the swamps on the other. They're marching through the sand. They came up on foot. You couldn't have cavalry because of the sand and the, the constriction. When they came up close enough, they realized that the Confederates had been clever enough to jog the fort off a little bit, so you couldn't come directly at it. You had to come up and then move to the side. What that meant is that you had to move in. So you had to actually a pincer movement in, and then um, come over this moat. And when they got to the moat, what they discovered is that inside the moat, inside the water, were abati, which are pointed sticks. So when you stepped in, you would likely get impaled on this thing. Um, so they, they had to go through the water and then climb up the sand. Um, and here they are, you know, attempting to do this. Um, they've gone over the first little hurdle there and they're trying to go up this thing. It was not easy. And actually here in the newspaper article, they show them running. In reality, they weren't running. In reality, they were trying to dig. And if you've ever tried to dig in sand, it, you, know, you don't go very far. So it's actually, it was quite a difficult thing for them to, to even attempt it. Um, and it didn't, as we know from, from history, it didn't work. Um, the casualties were extraordinary. Shaw was one of the first to die. Um, the, um, the, the casualties were over 1,500 on the Union side. Uh, a quarter of the 54th Regiment were casualties. Um, and, and then other regiments behind were also decimated. Because Shaw had volunteered to lead his troops on foot from the front, the other officers behind had done the same. So there was a particularly heavy casualty among officers. So as this battle went on, and this slogged on long into the evening, it finally came to a lieutenant. Um, Luis um, Emilio became the commander of the, of the regiment because he was the only one left. Um, so, so he became the commander um, and, and kept the men together and, and actually did quite well because he kept them focused, kept them together, um, so they didn't uh, scatter and run, which would have made the casualties even worse. Um, and then he gave the orders of entry to move back in a, in a dignified, organized way. But even that's difficult because it's nighttime, there was a thunderstorm going on, drenching rain, the sound of the ocean, so the, the drum signals were difficult to hear. So as they were moving back, the other regiments still moving back, so some of the, actually, some of the casualties were from friendly fire because, you know, the, the people moving forward see people coming back. They don't know who, anyway. So it was, it was a, you know, in, in the fog of war, it's, it's a messy um, business. Um, these are some of the 
members of the of the regiment. Um, and um, um, here, um, uh, Stewart here died um, that night. The others um, survived. Um, this is um, William Carney, um, who um, carried the flag. Um, he's the first African American to be given the Medal of Honor um, for his um, uh, bravery that night. Um, it was a long haul, and that's, an in, that's a part of the story, too, that it, he had to fight for that medal. He didn't get it right away. There was uh, people who didn't want to give it, um, and uh, threw up um, um, all sorts of reasons why they couldn't do it. Um, the same happened with um, Lieutenant Vogelzang up here, who waited almost until his death to get his lieutenancy, because, again, they didn't really want to make African-American officers um, in this regiment. They, thought they still, long after, would, still wanted to keep it all, keep white officers. So it, it, it's a constant struggle, a constant battle here. And these are all important people in, in, in that struggle. Um, Monroe, as you can see, is very young. He was actually much younger than he even let the army know. Um, and um, he was a drummer, um, and the fact that he survived is miraculous because the drummers were the people who were, were giving the orders. So the snipers took them out first because obviously you wanted to stop the communication with the army. So they were the first to be shot. So the fact that he survived is, is, is truly miraculous. He became a preacher after the war and um, um, would often bring up you know, elements of his experience in his messages to his parishioners. Um, after the war, there was an attempt to memorialize Shaw in the 54th. And there were some things that were done. There was a school that was started in Charleston and so on. But an actual sculpture, an actual monument was difficult to do, again, because of the, 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 the residual feelings of the war and also because of, of the residual feelings of um, how to memorialize African-Americans. So it actually took until 1883 before St. Gaudens got the commission to do this war, to, to, to do this monument. It's a long time. Um, but um, when he was given the commission, it was given as a memorial to Shaw. So he immediately thought, I'll do a equestrian figure. In his early studies, these are early clay studies, and this is an early drawing. And this drawing is at the Houghton Library. Um, show just Shaw on horseback. Um, and when he presented these drawings to the parents, um, the parents, um, Francis and Sarah both said no. A, only a, a higher officer deserves an equestrian statue. Our son was just a colonel, and our son was really committed to his men. We want the men to be part of it. And that then opened up a world to St. Gaudens that he had never really known. Um, as he started to work on how he was going to add the soldiers to this composition, 
This is the painting that struck him. It's a painting um, by Massonier, um, and um, he would have seen it on exhibit in Paris. Uh, it was owned by a um, department store magnate at the time, but it was exhibited publicly. Um, it was a very expensive painting. Um, I think it was 80,000 francs um, to, to, um, to, 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 pay, to, to um, make it. Um, it's a scene in, in the end of Napoleon's time, um, and the sadness of it is one of the things that struck St. Gardens. Um, this is right before Waterloo. Um, and he was also struck um, by the movement of these officers on horseback, but then by the men behind, um, the ranks of men moving. And here's a letter that he wrote to his niece um, um, showing this movement that he wanted. And he wanted her to get him a photographic copy of, of this, which is why this is in black and white. Um, so he wanted this, this um, photograph um, to, to, to see this composition. Um, and that's what he would, would base his design on. Um, you can see the man on horseback. You can see the moving figures. And there's St. Gardens in the, in the background there. Um, this is the clay study in full scale. Um, it's um, a composition which took him 14 years to do. Um, he knew he was slow. Um, <laughs> he was, um, what's interesting is that his memoirs were published after his death um, by his son, but his son took out all the human parts because his son was creating a legend. So his son took out the parts that are in many ways the most interesting, but there's a line in the original manuscript that talks about his slowness. It talks, and, it, and, it, and, and, he, and he knew exactly where he got it. He said, I'm just like my father, um, which is fascinating, but Homer's struck that out of the published man, which is interesting that he took that out. But he knew he was slow, but he did it because he wanted perfection. And as he went along, as he started to work on this, he quickly changed his views. When he first started, he had all the same stereotypes and prejudices that anybody in his time would have had. Um, he talks about the darkies, and so I mean, he, 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 didn't, he didn't know. He had never lived with black people. He, never, he didn't know anything about African-American people. So, so he didn't know, but he, but he changed. And that's the thing which is fascinating. Shaw changed. Um, Shaw became a man in this process. Um, St. Gardens became a better man in this process because he, he learned um, about other cultures, and he learned about other uh, kinds of life, which he would never have known about. Um, he did 40 studies of people. And as the story became more, he became more aware of the story and the sacrifice of these people, and the fact that these people were fighting for a much bigger cause. Um, one of the survivors of the 54th um, commented afterwards, I wasn't fighting for my country. I didn't think I had one, but I thought I was going to find one. So um, St. Gardens, when he was talking, um, as, he, as he did these studies, 
he didn't go to members of the 54th, but he went to African Americans that he saw on the street. And he brought them in, and he started hearing their stories. He started hearing their story, and it began to come alive to him that oh, this is not just a battle and a, and, and, a, and a man who died. So he began to make, he shifted away from making portraits of the soldiers to making it much more universal, to making it a variety of human um, faces to get the sense of universality. So he wanted um, all sorts of men. Um, he wanted a young men, old men, um, gnarled, um, you know, people who are look um, tired, people who look uh, passionate. He wanted all sorts of men. Um, and we recently found this photograph of the inside of his studio, and you can see uh, one of his other works, the Diane, in the front. But in the back is the Shaw. And it's interesting, there are plaster versions of the horse and one of the soldiers and, and one of the heads over here. But what's really interesting is what you can barely see. Right there, there's one of the full-scale soldiers in clay, and he's standing on a box that has wheels. So we can see that St. Gaudens was taking this figure and moving it across the front of the thing to see where he wanted these people to be, to get the sense of how to arrange them, um, which is a fascinating way to see how he worked, how he came about this, this process. Um, again, he didn't want to give up the idea of this um, equestrian statue, um, but he came to understand more about the, the, the value of the men. He was basing it on that painting, but then he also added other things that he had um, learned about as well. And we'll see some of that in a moment, too. Well, I, I'm going to go to this and then come back. This is the monument in, in um, um, Cornish, New Hampshire. But, oops, sorry, I got the wrong buttons. It's a, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, it's a good thing I'm not leading an army. I'd... Um, these, the, the rifles up at the top here, um, the arrangement of that he got from a Spanish painting by Velazquez, um, the, the painting at Breda, the, 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 the army at Breda, the, the surrender of the Spanish army. And that, in that case, it's spears. But, but he took that idea of these, these verticals, and he liked that idea of those verticals um, going slightly backward to give a, a, a little push back on this forward movement. And then he also saw a French military funeral, um, which impressed him hugely because um, in the funeral he would see these ranks of men moving in exact um, um, rhythm. So these, there's this movement of these masses of legs moving in this rhythm, and he, he liked that as well. So he put that into this as well. So it's like a cell, it's like a Hollywood, uh, like a movie, um, which he's done with this um, movement of these people um, moving f forward, and then up above, and, and you, you can see it better just down the street in, in, in the sculpture down there, the angel at the top. Um, his best friend, 
uh, Paul Bion criticized him about that at the end and said, I'll oh, get rid of that. You don't need that. It's a good thing he didn't listen. It's a good thing he left it because it is needed. Because what that does is, again, to raise the whole image into that ethereal realm, to, to say that these people are moving um, into destiny. They're not just ordinary soldiers, but they're people fighting for a much bigger cause. Um, these are remarkable photographs. Um, they're among the only images, photographic images, that exist of the um, actual um, um, dedication um, in Memorial Day of 1897 of the statue down the street here. Um, and we have them because Mrs. St. Gardens brought her brownie camera with her to the event and was standing up on the, on the steps of the State House taking pictures um, over the crowd. Um, you know, you can see the people in front, uh, but she's taking pictures over the crowd of the event. So it's wonderful. Um, here it is before the, the, the monument is unveiled. You can just see the beginning of the parade coming here. Um, and then you see them moving forward along as they come along. See them coming along, coming along. Um, and then up here is actually when it's unveiled. Um, and um, it's really wonderful to have those images. That's the real event. Um, St. Gaudens hated dedications. Like most sculptors, it was the art, the, the, the studio work that, that was his world. And the dedication was something that he feared. He didn't, didn't like the public. And, but when he went to the, the ceremony, you know, for someone who was nervous about public appearances, they put him in the wrong coach because they put him in a coach with um, William James, who was absolutely terrified of public speaking. So the two of them were in this coach going along, and they, it's, it's recorded that the two of them were standing there saying to each other, the eyes, look at all the eyes, all these people staring at us. They were, they were mesmerized by all this crowd, and they were, they were getting more and more nervous about it. And when they finally got to the ceremony, the two men had decided, okay, We'll just hide in the back. Nobody will notice us. But of course, they were the featured people. So someone, some helpful person grabbed them and said, no, 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 you're up front, and moved them up in the front. And so of course, because they had waited, it was even worse, because everybody else was seated. And then these two men have to walk across the stage. And so they made it worse themselves. But um, they managed to get through it. William gave an extraordinary speech, um, followed by an even more extraordinary speech by Booker T. Washington, um, who, um, and St. Gaudens was struck by that speech, particularly, he said it was particularly effective because it was given um, by an African-American. Um, he, he noticed you know, that that was even more, because Washington said, okay, this is a wonderful moment for us, this is great, but don't forget that there's a whole world of issues out there that still need to be dealt with. So, so let's, let's celebrate this, but, but don't lose uh, track of the fact that, that we haven't quite reached the top of that mountain yet. So, so um, and it's interesting that he did that in this moment, and, and it's also interesting that St. Gaudens recognized it. St. Gaudens also in this moment understood the real sense of what he had done. When he saw the actual survivors of the regiment 
coming in front of his eyes. It's the moment when it all came to him, it kind of crashed down on him. He said it's a consecration um, because he suddenly realized the magnitude of what he'd done because he's seeing and he said, I'm looking at you know, my depiction of these young, hopeful men moving forward to destiny and now these old, grizzled men staggering back after, and he, he understood this whole, you know, universal um, image of mankind that he had created, um, and he understood at that moment that he had done something, you know, m much greater than he even knew. Um, as I mentioned before, this is the version that you'll see if you come to Cornish. Um, this is um, how we depicted it at um, Memorial Day. We put out flags for the regiment. Um, and we put out the flags for the regiment because we want to honor them, but also because you can't help but again be struck when you look at that field of flags, again, what this is about and what the story is about. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a whole um, much bigger story. And um, when our um, neighbor here, um, David McCulloch, came to Cornish, um, he stood in front of this and he said, this is a monument that every American should see. Um, and that's where I'm going to end uh, my story, because it is a monument that every American should see, because it's a great work of art, but it's an even greater story. Thank you.